Good evening. Awesome. I am uh, the next speaker, of course, for our uh, Winter Conference series over Ecclesiastes. Um, so we heard this morning from Ecclesiastes 2 from Andy Martin, and I will be taking Ecclesiastes 3. So please turn there in your copies of Scripture with me to Ecclesiastes 3. And although we just heard from Andy this morning, um, I would like to start with a little bit of a recap on what we've heard so far from Ecclesiastes. Um, it's nice in, in this regard that he spoke this morning, and I'm speaking tonight, so it's fresh in your brain and it's fresh in, in my brain as well. Um, but what we've seen so far from Ecclesiastes is uh, we see the, the author uh, speaking uh, through the voice of a teacher or a preacher, um, whether Solomon or, or someone taking on a, a Solomon-like persona. Um, and, and what we've seen so far from this teacher is uh, that he has given us his, his opening statement, um, that his experience in life has led him to one conclusion, and that is that all is vanity. All of his pursuits are vanity. Um, and we've seen from chapter 1 and chapter 2 different ways that this, this teacher has uh, gone about exploring life, uh, looking in worldly fashions to try to find fulfillment or joy in their life. Uh, we would have seen in, in chapter 1 um, that, uh, van- that uh, wisdom and knowledge and the, the gaining of such uh, lead to vanity. And we saw from uh, chapter 2 with Andy this morning that things like self-indulgence of the flesh, uh, one's accomplishments, uh, trying to, to live wisely um, and toiling for what could be a lasting legacy, uh, all of those also result in, in vanity, in life. And, and Andy did well to give us uh, the, the picture, the, the challenge that um, the uh, speaker here is going to work his way towards, and that is that toil, worldly toil, is vanity. Uh, but when we toil with God in our perspective, then it is no longer vanity. Instead, it is the right thing to do. Um, but Andy did highlight one other point that we're going to see recurring uh, tonight in Ecclesiastes 3, um, and that is that death is an equalizer for all of us in the end. And in chapter 3, it's a bit of a different format than we looked at in chapter 2. In, in chapter 3, uh, the author is putting together an argument for us, uh, and the author has been something of an empiricist, maybe not quite a scientist, but, but an empiricist. Uh, meaning that he is trying to gain knowledge or understanding about something through experience. And then through that experience, he's going to apply that knowledge or understanding to concepts or share it, in this case, with us. And in chapter 3, he's going to be building on well, what he's experienced in his life so far. Uh, when I read through chapter 3 and I, and I try to, to visualize, conceptualize what the author is trying to communicate here, uh, I, I think back to maybe conversations with my grandfather on the porch, where he is this old, wizened man sitting in a rocking chair, uh, trying to convey life's wisdom to me, a, a young child. And as we get to chapter 3, our speaker is going to be talking to us about time, which I feel like I can probably speak on some, surveying the room, but many of you probably have more to say about time and life than I do. Um, so I will humbly approach this, and we'll try to communicate what I, what I believe the author um, is trying to teach us through this observation of time. 
Uh, join me uh, reading through the first, we'll go through the eight verses of Ecclesiastes 3 together. It begins, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. A lot about time there. We'll begin with what I think we could say is the speaker's thesis statement here. Again, if he's, if he's trying to make this argument for us. His thesis statement is plainly put in verse 1, that for everything there is a season and a time for every, every matter. Now that The word matter could be interpreted differently. It could be activity or it could also be desire. There's a, a time for every activity, desire, or matter under heaven, and each occurs in its own season or its own appointed time. Right? We can count on the four seasons occurring in the order in which they do. And that's the thesis statement that he is starting off this argument with. And he's going to illustrate that thesis with the 14 statements he makes underneath. Now, now for this, verses 2 through 8, um, we have to approach it from an understanding of Hebrew poetry, uh, where he's not necessarily speaking um, about literal things, but he's speaking poetically. Um, greater Bible scholars than I could explain that better and, and what this poetry means and significance of repetition and numbering. Um, but what we do see are 14 statements of things that are polar opposites of each other. If we look at the first, a time to be born and a time to die, serving as just one example of the other 13, we see that these two things are opposite of each other and cannot occur at the same time. Right? are born at one time in life, and then you die at another time in life, if we're thinking about life linearly. And he's comparing these opposite statements for us to provide examples of, of common experiences in the human life. If you were to look at those verses, 2 through 8, and, and look at them and evaluate them yourselves, you can probably point to different seasons or moments of time and you have memories of that, whether good or, or bad. You have experiences that the author has just spoke about. And it's possible that, that looking on this, your experiences that you haven't had to deal with yet. We can consider ourselves lucky for that. But he's trying to communicate for us things that we can all relate to in our lives or things that we have experienced as he has also experienced, good or bad. And that these occur apart from one another. Some of these we have control over and some of them we don't have control over. If we evaluate again that first statement, a time to be born and a time to die, uh, we don't have control over that. However, the second statement paired with it, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, we may say that we do have control over that. If you want to plant into your garden in the spring or leading into summer for whatever uh, you know, fruit or vegetable you would like, you can control the time of your planting, 
And then when you get hungry for that vegetable, you can go out and pluck it from the plant. And these statements are here for us um, to uh, illustrate or emphasize his thesis. Uh, but the author has a reasoning behind it as well. His reasoning starts up in verse 9. And for this, we'll look at, at verses 9 through 11. And we're going to come back to some of these statements above as well. In verse 9, he says, What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. It's interesting that in verse 9, we're seeing a repeated statement by the teacher here. Uh, what gain has the worker from his toil? Uh, this should seem familiar to us because this is a statement that he's challenged us with in both chapters 1 and 2. Chapters 1, verse 3, and, and chapter 2, verse 11. So by the time he states it for the third occurrence here in chapter 3, we should not expect a different answer to this question. He's almost asking it rhetorically. Like, I've already explained this to you, let me state it again. We know that the answer is going to be that, that there is nothing to gain from the toil because all is, is vanity. And he's using these observations in verses 2 through 8 to support and to illustrate this. But in verses 10 and 11, our author wants us to learn something about these statements up above, these polar opposites. He says we know the answer to the question in verse 9, but he shifts and he says in verse 10 that he has seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. That's verses 2 through 8, the different seasons and activities of life. And in verse 11 he says, he, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. That, that doesn't sound like a very pessimistic statement to me that we would normally attribute to the book of Ecclesiastes. Instead, the, the speaker here is going to give us three observations about these different events or seasons that we experience in life. And each of these statements is going to be rooted in the person or character of God. And he's going to make an observation for us about how God is the one that is going to be in control. He's going to be sovereign over the events and sovereign over time. That first statement in verse 11, he has made everything beautiful. Uh, we, we could also think of that word beautiful as being uh, appropriate or, or proper. That, that he has made everything as it should be in his intent in its own time. So this means that God is in control, right? That he's in control of his plans and he has an appropriate timing for everything that occurs in, in my life and in, in your life. And that rested in God's sovereignty, nothing is outside of that control. Secondly, uh, we could see in, in perhaps verse 11, when he says he has made, sorry, verse uh, 11, second part, also he has put eternity into man's heart, uh, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Uh, we, we see that the speaker has perhaps a, a bit of an understanding or study of maybe the Mosaic books as well. Uh, we're going to see in the second half of this chapter uh, that our speaker has a good understanding of who man is and what the fall has done to man and in their relationship to God. He, he says here in verse 11 that God has put eternity into the hearts of man. 
This could be a, a note about how we are a special creation of God, that we are made in the image of God and therefore have some shared attributes of God. God being uh, a, a being outside of the constraints of time and, and living in an eternity instead um, has given us the ability to, to begin to think about, begin to perceive what eternity is like. It's given us a, a curiosity to want to know more about ourselves, about God, and about the effects and perhaps the, the lasting effects our life has past our own mortality. But there's a constraint built in with that that was given to us by the fall that we can begin to consider these ideas, but we can't fully understand eternity like God does. At least not here on this earth, while still experiencing the fall, one day in heaven perhaps, but for right now, we're driven by this curiosity to want to know more, to want to be in control, to find out the answer for ourselves. I think that's why he states here at the end of verse 11 that uh, we cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. He has put this constraint on us. And that could be a frustrating thing. At least it is for me. Uh, that feels like sometimes things are, are just outside of what I can, can see or realize or learn. And what it causes for me to do is want to try to control that situation myself. Right, I want to be in control, perhaps, of my own uh, destiny or fate or whatever the next step is. I want to, perhaps, control the order of events that happen in, in verses 2 through 8. And I, I, our speaker here is saying that that's not up for us to do. If we try to do so, if we toil to do so, to have control over our own lives in this way, what is the eventual result? Verse 9 says it's going to be vanity. It's going to be something that feels like we can grasp it. I like that example that Andy used this morning about seeing the, your, your condensed breath outside in the cold. And, and you see it as a vapor and it's, it has a physicality to it. You feel like you can reach out and grab it and capture it. But as soon as you do, when you look in the palm of your hand, it's gone. It could be the same here. As we try to determine and direct our own fate, we're going to find that we can't do it. We can't grasp it. Because we're not the ones that are really in control. That's God that's going to be in control. I think that's the third point that he's trying to make uh, for our reasoning on this, uh, this argument that he's giving to us here in chapter 3. It's that we can't know the work of God in time. Right, so although we can consider this, this reality, we can uh, consider what it means to be a, a human in this world made in the image of God we're still ignorant of God's plans in the end. Uh, we can seek God's plans, prayer, scripture, uh, good counsel, but we don't know concretely what God has determined for us next. We don't know if tomorrow is going to be a reality for each and every one of us. So we should live our lives accordingly is going to be the response that the author is going to give us. Uh, look with me at verses 12 and 13. As we see the reasoning for the argument given to us by, by the teacher, we can see the response that he is going to uh, suggest for us of, of what is proper to do. In verse 13, it reads, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. 
So he's making a similar recommendation that, that he did in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 24, uh, he said, There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink uh, and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. We see that this, this verse, this statement, mirrors that very closely. So he's not uh, stepping away from what we could say is going to be his ultimate conclusion Excuse me, for us at some point. Um, and he's restating that um, for us with reality in mind, with eternity in mind, and with our, un- our inability to know God's plans, then we should be grateful for what we have in the moment. He's, he's trying to teach us that we need to be content to look at the toiling that we have done and the results of that toiling. And if we look at it in a view of a perception that God is the one that's giving it to us, then there we will find true contentment. Because then instead of being a vanity, it's going to be a gift of God and the things that we do have. And, and I do want to, want to um, address while we're here uh, that if we look at uh, verse uh, 13, everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil, um, that what our author is not doing here is he's not promoting um, an Epicurean sort of look on it. Uh, so if we look in like book of Acts 17 or 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul deals with uh, Epicurean and Stoicism. Um, he uses it in a negative light. So we could say with Scripture's consistency here that this particular teacher isn't promoting it instead. Uh, that would be the, the understanding of, of eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Uh, Paul refutes that. But what he's instead saying is that with God in mind, with a proper view and understanding of ourselves in relation to God, we eat and drink and rejoice because it's all a gift from God instead. And we could also, uh, perhaps, instead of taking my words, look at uh, words of a different scholar. Uh, Christian uh, Ginsburg, Christian D. Ginsburg, uh, would take verse 13 and he would summarize it or render it this way. Uh, he would say, quote, uh, if If any man eats and drinks and finds satisfaction in all his toil, it is a gift from God. It is something that is universal to all of mankind. Anyone who eats, anyone who drinks, anyone who finds satisfaction in their toil, it is a gift, a common grace from God. We can continue in the argument. We have seen now the reasoning, we've seen the response And the teacher is going to give us the purpose. What is the the purpose behind this? Why is he bringing this to our attention? The purpose for this we can find in verses 14 and 15. In verse 14 we read, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, And God seeks what has been driven away. Now there's some back and forth there that might make these two verses a little bit confusing. So let's break it down and examine perhaps the purpose um, that our our teacher here is wanting for us to see out of this. So the teacher, what he's doing here is he is describing for us the nature of God's plan and the response that we should have to it. He's pointing out three things to us I think we can take out of these two verses. We can see first that God's plan is eternal. Right? In, in verse 14, uh, he says that, uh, that whatever God does, 
So we can think of that as God's plan. Whatever God does endures forever. So God's plan is eternal. That means from eternity past to eternity future, God's plan is known and established and is governed by him. That this is his plan and has been his plan, and nothing was going to change that plan. And before the pages of, of our, our Bibles, of Scripture, begin, God has put his plan into place. Elsewhere, you might see language like before the foundation of the world. We're seeing that echoed here through our teacher. The second thing he would uh, teach us about God's plan is that God's plan is perfect. And notice these are simple truths. He's trying to pull out for us simple truths that we can see. He wants to see that God's plan is perfect. He says nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. That is perfect as it is. God does not need to, to edit it. God doesn't need to change it. And nothing that you and I can do as human beings can alter that plan in any way. It is perfect as it is. And third, another simple truth is that God's plan is unchanging, or, or the, the churchy word we might use is immutable. We see that in the next verse. That which, already, that which is already has been, and that which is to be already has been. We're seeing two instances of time. The first, that which is, uh, this could be anything past leading up to present. That, that which is already has been. So that which is, from, from past leading up to, to present, already has been in God's plan. And then after that semicolon, that which is to be, so from this point into the future, already has been. The second statement attached to each, already has been, points that God has had this in his plan already, in the past. That this has been predetermined by him, and his sovereignty is what carries it out to fulfillment. And we see that this is directly related. It's almost word for word from what he opened us up with in chapter 1, verse 9. And chapter 1, verse 9 reads, What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. So we're seeing him reaching back to statements that he opened this up with in the beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes, and he's bringing that back into his arguments here, fleshing them out and explaining them for us, as we read through his arguments and his experiences. <coughs> Pardon me. We can also relate this to uh, verse 15, because there's a second part to that, um, that we can maybe look at a different translation. Uh, there's a, a translation for the New King James for the second part of verse 15 that I, I thought was, was better, one that I liked more. Let's be honest, that's what it was. Um, and whereas the ESV says, and God seeks what has been driven away, the New King James would translate as, and God requires an account of what is past. Or, or that uh, what is past could also be a, what is pursued. So we could translate it more literally, perhaps through the New King James as, and God requires an account of what has been pursued. And we should begin to see a picture here that the teacher is trying to paint for us about God's character and his plan and who he is, that he is in control. And then just a very quick statement by him here at the end that he'll revisit later in this chapter, that God being in control will require an account. So I don't want us to lose that. 
But if we're to summarize, perhaps in a statement, what the purpose from our speaker, from our, our teacher here is, well, it's going to be that we will revere God. We don't want to miss that point from verse 14 as well. The second half of that verse says, God has done it so that people fear before him. God has done it so that people fear before him. So why has God put together his plan that is so beyond us, so outside of us, that we have no control for it? Why does he let us toil with, with time and trying to find our own way in life and trying to control our own destinies? When he is the one who has full control. Well, in this first statement, we'll see a second statement later. He says, so that way we can humbly submit ourselves then to the plan of God. We can humbly submit ourselves to the plan of God. Let's talk about application. Uh, because our, our, our teacher gives us application here. He gives us his, his thesis, his reasoning. He gives us his advice, his purpose. Um, now he wants us to be able to see a way that we can apply it. As he's gone through and he's made this argument, uh, he might realize, and I think he does well to state and defend an argument here, where he sees that, that we might have um, things that we can point through that seem to be exceptions to God's plan. Uh, I think if we were to consider how we might see this come up in our day-to-day -day lives, it could be the sort of questions you get of, of, like, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Why does there seem to be a, a paradox with God? And, and our author is going to work to address that a little bit. In, in verse 16, join me, though, read through verse 22. Uh, then we'll break it apart. Verse 16, uh, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness... Even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity." All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? So he addresses two things, injustice and oppression in the world. He says, well, as he's making this argument, people might look to these things and say, well, teacher, what about these two things? How do you explain injustice, wickedness, oppression? How do you explain that in God's plan? He, he goes uh, through what I think is, is a decent refutation of it as he tries to explain with observations in his own life. He doesn't wait for the question to be asked, but he gets in front of it by stating that he, here are things I myself have seen in life. He, he states and admits that he's seen that under the sun, uh, in a place of justice, there was wickedness. This could be in courts, in systems of government, or this side of the cross. This could even be in a church. 
He sees injustice where there shouldn't be and wickedness where there should be righteousness instead. But he gives a purpose for it. And in verse 17, he says that he says in his heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Verse 18, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts are but beasts. So he says in these two verses that even something like oppression or injustice isn't outside the plan of God, but that instead God has a plan for it. He does not ignore injustice, but instead he may let it go on for his own purpose and intent. He states that God will judge the righteous and the wicked. So he says even if it seems that there is evil on the world today, another result of the fall, that eventually it is God who's going to make things right and to balance the accounts. And it's not up to us. Due to us in our fallen state, we're going to be the ones that cause the injustice to be there in the first place. But in the meantime, before God brings judgment to the righteous and the wicked, notice both accounts there, he says that that, uh, children of man are going to be tested by God. In verse 18, we tested by God so they can see that they themselves are but beasts. So God wants to use things like this in the human life and experience to teach us a lesson about who we are and ourselves before him. So the first being that God is going to be the final judge and he is going to make right the wrongs in the world. And the second is that he's trying to teach us about our own uh, finitude or our own temporariness that we ourselves are also but a vapor on this world. We live 70, 80, 90 years. We are here and then we're gone. And in that meantime, um, God wants to show us that he is the one who is going to be divinely in control. He goes further on this point in verse 19. He wants to demonstrate that man and beast all all meet to the same inevitable end. Verse 19, for what happens to the children of man, what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They'll have the same breath. So we think they'll have the same breath of life in their lungs. And man has no advantage over the beasts for all is vanity. Just as a human being is alive and my dog at home is alive, we are both going to hit, outside of God's intervention, um, a state where we're both going to die at some point. And our our teacher here is trying to pull back, I think, a pretty deep layer for us on our own understanding of who we are and our own uh, temporariness on this earth. That as much as we want to try to grasp hold of our own planning and our own time, we don't have much of it. That we're going to meet the same end as everything else that God has designed to be living on this earth and that death comes for us all. And therefore, those toils for our own selfish gain, for our own purposes, is going to be, as he concludes in the end of verse 19, vanity. He goes a little bit further. He wants to, to challenge us again uh, on a different point in verse 20. He says, all go to one place. By that, he means the ground. All go to one place. All are from dust, and to dust all return. Demonstrating again an understanding in the book of Genesis. In verse 21 
who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So, so he's speaking about, about spirit now, or, or breath, perhaps. He's saying, who knows if beast and man have a different end than the afterlife. He, he's, he's speaking, in this case, again, empirically. He's saying that man cannot demonstrate or prove through any sort of observation or any sort of science uh, that the, the spirit of one goes anywhere different than the other. That's something that we accept by faith. And in doing so, he is demonstrating, like he did in chapter 2, when he's speaking about the difference of, of the wise man and the foolish man, and that they are also made equal upon death, that death comes for them in the same way, it does for man and beast as well. So what's the conclusion to reach there? Well, the conclusion is in verse 22. So I saw that there is nothing better that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. And he ends with another question. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? And that question there at the end is to drive home the point that we ourselves don't know what's going to happen the next day, the next year, the next uh, season of our life. We don't know. So in verse 22, our teacher tells us to Sit where you are now. There's nothing better for you to do than to rejoice in your work, for this is your lot. Your lot being that this is what God has given for you to do. He has given you this toil, this, this fruits of your labor, to sit and to enjoy them as God has given them to you. No different than as he was speaking of previously in verses 12 and 13. Where he would state, everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. But we might think that there at the end it seems a bit strange uh, that if we assume that the, the author of this is, is Solomon, um, that, that this is someone who is uh, seemingly ignoring uh, the afterlife. Right? He, he seems to be leveling the ground, beast and man. Um, but let me encourage you that as we go through this series on Ecclesiastes, we're going to see that that's not really his understanding. Once we reach the end of this book and our study of this book together, uh, we're going to see that Solomon is merely using this as a rational argument to point out to us as we're reading through it in chapter three, that the fall brought injustice and that this injustice demonstrates our own mortality, our own temporality or temporariness on this earth and our ignorance of God's plan. And also us on this side of the cross, this side of the Bible, know the rest of the story that someone like Solomon may not have been able to know. Whereas he would have had the books of Moses to go off of, we have the 66 books in front of us to see. We know the second half of the story in the person of Jesus coming and fulfilling this for us living a life that wasn't vain, living instead a life that for us we can grasp and hold onto at the foot of the cross for forgiveness of our sins. He can change this relationship that man has due to the fall with God and instead offer us something better. If he's talking here about resting in the lot that God has given you, that if you have uh, work in your heart, work that you're doing, and you're doing so with the right perspective towards God as the one who is in control, then you're going to find uh, joy in that work. 
doubly so for the person that looks and sees Christ as fulfillment of this work and grasps, grasps on to him instead. So there's a lot to learn here in Ecclesiastes 3. If I had to narrow it down to just a few words, it would be that we should let go of our own grasp on our time. We should see that God's the one who is sovereign. God's the one that's in control. As soon as we surrender our part of ourselves that wants to, to grasp and harness that control to him instead, we are going to find contentment. We're going to find joy in what God has given us. And we'll start seeing it as a gift instead of as a vanity. Um, concluding um, what Andy was looking at this morning in, in chapter 2 and introducing it to chapter just into chapter 3, um, a nice transition statement that I found in my studies from Warren Wearsby uh, would go similarly to this to describe it. Um, it would be that, that the, the entertainments in life would... Let me, ooh, let me see if I can get this right for not having written it down. Oh, boy. Uh, that the, the entertainments in life bring... I don't know. I forget it now. Ends with enrichment, though. <laughs> he contrasts it by saying that instead it's going to be um, um, God that brings enrichment. And the entertainment can bring another E word. There are three E's. It was clever. There's your homework. You can look it up. Uh, so join me in a word of prayer as I close uh, our time in Ecclesiastes 3. And as we look forward to our next session on it next week. Our God, we thank you uh, for this time that we can come together. We thank you for this opportunity to get uh, different men from the body of the church up in front uh, to, to look into the book of Ecclesiastes and to, uh, to share our studies and our, our viewpoints and what you've laid on our hearts with the church body. Um, I pray that this is a time that, that builds up and that edifies um, those uh, among this local body of believers at Calvary Baptist Church. Um, I pray for the other men that are going to come up here over the weeks, uh, that you give them uh, a benefit in their study. Uh, you show them truths from your word. You give them uh, a confidence in the preparation that they're going to be doing uh, as they come up here and stand and talk. Uh, but more so, I ask that, that this is a, a book and a study that is going to change our lives. Um, let it be something that takes uh, this church body from, from one step in our sanctification to a greater step. Make us more like Christ through this um, as we see a, a stark contrast of what living um, by worldly conditions looks like compared to living under godly conditions and godly perspectives. Uh, use uh, this, what is regarded as a pessimistic text, a pessimistic book, uh, to instead give us great encouragement and hope in uh, the work that you have done on our behalf um, and in the plan that you have laid out for us in your sovereignty. Praise the name of your son.